Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. today is there's no rule book finding forgiveness after the murder of my husband and our guest today is Katie Hutchinson. Katie Hutchinson, author of Walking After Midnight, will speak to us on the show about the tragic murder of her husband, Bob McIntosh, restorative justice, social responsibility, and forgiveness. Katie has spoken at hundreds of schools and has appeared on national television and radio across the country. She was nominated for the Courage to Come Back Award and the Woman of Distinction Award. She is the recipient of the From Me to We Social Action Award for 2006. Katie lives in Victoria, British Columbia. Welcome to the show, Katie. Thank you so much, Heidi. Hi, Katie. It's great to have you on. Hi, Gloria. Could you tell our audience a little bit about uh, what happened to you and, and what year was it? It was 1997, New Year's Eve, so we're coming up on 10 years. Mm-hmm. I was living in a small community in British Columbia with my husband, Bob, and our two children, twins, who uh, in 1997 were four years old. And we were celebrating a quiet New Year's Eve with friends when we were made aware that a house party was going on down the road at the home of a vacationing neighbor. And uh, my husband, Bob, called the house to make sure that the teenager had the situation under control. And when he was unable to reach the teenager, he decided that he would just go down to the end of the road to check to make sure everything was all right. He walked in on 200 young people in the middle of a very out-of-control situation. Mm. We found out later that party had been going on since the late afternoon. So by the time Bob got there at 10 o'clock at night, there was um, a lot of fights starting, a lot of property being damaged, a lot of kids that were um, drunk and stoned. And when Bob went upstairs to check on the master bedroom, to be sure there was no one partying on our friend's personal space, um, he encountered a, a group of young people who were clearly not pleased to see him. And one young man punched Bob um, in the side of the head and knocked him out cold. Mm-hmm. And then another young man, a 20-year-old by the name of Ryan Aldridge, came up to Bob's unconscious body and delivered four soccer-type kicks to Bob's head. Mm-hmm. And Bob died of a massive brain hemorrhage. Mm, awesome. Wow, he died immediately there. We're not sure exactly how long it took. Uh-huh. But, but you weren't, he wasn't alive when he went to the hospital? No, no he was dead on the scene. Wow, what, what an, a tremendous shock. And also, um, from reading on your fabulous website, and we'll talk about that later, um, you talk about the fact that it took a long time for the, the people at the party wouldn't talk about it, right? No one would say anything. Uh, it began what we called a code of silence that just fell over this small town. The population of the community was about uh, 14,000 at the time. And, you know, we, we truly believed that there was eyewitnesses and that people saw what happened, mm-hmm. but nobody would say anything. Wow. And the police arrived. Uh, they could get no information. And ultimately it took five years to make an arrest. That is amazing. So just the kids were trying to be loyal to each other? Is that what you think was going on? Yes, or? I think this is a huge part of the group dynamic that we see, um, mm-hmm. you know, sort of mob mentality where kids get pulled into situations. When you've got that layer of alcohol and other drugs, things get, get very cloudy and move very quickly. And there was an enormous amount of fear mm-hmm. associated with what had gone on, probably fear of retaliation. 
and it became very important for whoever saw what happened to not say anything. How did you hear about it? The police were on my doorstep. Mm. It was surreal. It was just before midnight, New Year's Eve, and um, I had to leave my children in the care of our dinner guests. And, and a couple but you had four-year-old twins. I had four-year-old twins asleep in bed, and I you know, left them with our friends and got in the police car, arrived at the hospital to watch um, a friend of ours who was a doctor on call, desperately trying to resuscitate Bob. Mm-hmm. Of course, at that point, they didn't realize that it was a head injury that had caused his death. They were you know, working on his heart, and uh, nothing they were going to do was going to start it. So I had... a an enormous revelation as I was standing there looking at the healthcare professionals and the, the police who were all doing everything they could in a situation that was um, clearly testing everything they'd been trained uh, to do as professionals. And I realized that at some point each one of those people was going to get to leave. Their shift was going to end. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't at work. Mm-hmm. This was happening to me and I had two children to go home and not only tell, but give breakfast to and they just lost their dad and they weren't going to lose me to this and I, I decided right then and there that I had to find a way to move forward in a positive way that's amazing that you were able to have that revelation so close to your husband's death I, I had it looking at him it was wow. the oddest sense of I, I mean I can't really find a word better than an empowerment Mixed in with the devastation and the fear and the, you know, I mean, the gut-wrenching physical response to his death. I mean, all those things were going on, but, but in the middle of it, in my core, was this sense of having to move through and protect my children and look after us and not to be defined by whatever horrible thing had taken my husband away. It was not about the way he lived, clearly, and I wanted to celebrate always. From, from that moment forward, I wanted to celebrate the way he lived his life, not whatever horrible act had taken him away from us. So you set that sense of resolve very early. Immediately. And now you didn't know at the time that it was actually murder, did you? No, though they were they were suspecting foul play. They wouldn't allow me to touch his body. And there was, there was a few things I could tell from looking at him that weren't right. He had a bruise on the back of his hand that clearly was a self-defense wound. And... Um, a, a bruise developing in his temple, which of course was from the first um, punch. It wasn't until they did the autopsy that they determined exactly that the cause of death had been a kick to the back of the head. But it, it was clear that something was not right, and this wasn't simply a heart attack. Or now, how did you feel when you heard that? Did it, was <sighs> I, I was I was fearful. I was fearful. I was disgusted, but but really mostly fearful of the world that I had brought my children into the small community I was living in that we chose because it was safe, because it was out of the big city. Mm-hmm. It was just challenging everything in my belief system. Now, what happened? Um, wh- you know, wh- how did you deal with the fact that they couldn't find any information? You must have been totally frustrated. Well, I believed that they would, and th- th- the difficulty I felt was that the rest of my world, my community, my family people close to me, certainly Bob's friends and family, were angry and vengeful. And I didn't feel that way. I mm-hmm. never felt that way. And I think a lot of people misunderstood that to be um, somehow feeling less about my husband. And it wasn't that at all for me. It was just 
all I could look at was the big picture here. You know, what is going on in our communities to enable young people to get themselves in such a situation that they could commit such a horrible act. There was no point for me in going back and trying to to change what happened to Bob. I couldn't do that, but I really believed that I could put my energy into raising um, safe and caring children and, and perhaps breaking the horrible cycle of anger for whoever it was that, that killed Bob. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is very interesting to me because I see um, uh, some of the same patterns <clears throat> with myself and with our guests, but I see it coming much later with the death of a child. Um, I remember setting a resolve that I wasn't going to get sick, but it was weeks and weeks later. And um, do you, Heidi, I know you've interviewed both parents and siblings. Do you see that coming later? Um, I think Katie's an unusual person, but her story reminds me a little bit of Craig and Daryl Scott with the Columbine tragedy, right. because and because of, in those murders, because they felt the same way. They really wanted to know what was going on that these two shooters felt so angry and felt so alienated that they would go in and and commit these heinous acts. But I think it was a bit later, maybe like a year later. You know what it may have been? It may have been. I mean, to have this epiphany so quickly is is amazing and wonderful that Katie was able to do that. And I'm I'm kind of wondering a little bit, Katie, how how are your in-laws with it? How are they with it now? This is interesting. Both my in-laws were deceased when Bob was killed. Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly think that that would have made a difference. It would have been harder for me to have been so focused on um, the broader picture. Mm-hmm. If, the, if, 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 if Bob's parents had been alive. If Bob's parents had been alive. His sister, his cousin were very gracious in allowing me to do what I felt I needed to do. Mm-hmm. But it was complex. The story was very public. It was front page news and television. Bob's funeral, a thousand people were there. It was televised. It was a very, very public story, and I spoke publicly. Now, he was an attorney, right? He was a lawyer. Um, he was also a world-class triathlete. He competed um, all over the world. He was captain of the Canadian team a month before he was killed. Oh, my gosh. He was a very um, community-focused, uh, bigger-than-life character that a lot of people uh, were connected to. Mm-hmm. So when he was killed, there was um, huge... Uh, anger and an outpouring of, of um, commentary about the scenario. And I had to be very, very careful what I said. But I also, and I think this is really important, when you're grieving, whether it's, it doesn't matter how you've lost a loved one, that you have to listen to your heart. Mm-hmm. There is no um, set of rules. Nobody came to my door the next morning and handed me a magic book to follow. And I had to listen to my heart. It was the only way that I could could be authentic and I could um, properly grieve Bob. And I love the word authentic. That's great. Authentic grief and being authentic. Yeah, it, it, you have to. And you know, I I, I did um, push boundaries and and challenge people's um, belief system around grieving. Um, you know, and I'm sure you'll get into this later. But particularly by by falling in love with somebody while I was grieving Bob. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think sometimes people think you're going to wake up one morning and it's going to be over. You're going to be finished with it. Um, some people use a word that I can't stand, which is closure. Right. There is no closure. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll always grieve Bob, but I learned that no one but myself could continue living and bring my children forward and, and keep us healthy and, and uh, 
create a life that was worth living. Well, well, and I like what you said, Katie, that just because you were able to forgive and not hold on to the anger doesn't mean that you didn't love Bob, that you love Bob any less. Correct, or that the way he lost his life was any less horrific. It was all those things. But Bob was, you know, he lived life 110%. And my children had lost their father. I didn't want them to lose me. You know, the doctors were handing me tranquilizers. My girlfriends were saying, we'll take your kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people were dropping off um, freezerfuls of food, which was which was wonderful, but I wanted my life back. Mm-hmm. Um, the way Bob died was not an extension of the way he lived, and I wanted us to live uh, a life that that properly celebrated the and, way we had. And like you said, your children had already lost one parent. Exactly. Now, how do you balance uh, with the kids now that you were talking about? They're going into high school now, and they were four when Bob was killed. What do you do with his memory? How do you balance all that? Um, we talk about how he lives on in them. Um, my son, mm-hmm. Sam, is a walking, talking, constant reminder of Bob. Wow. A physical risk taker the way Bob was, an amazing athlete, um, devastatingly handsome. <laughs> He's going to you know, cause me great heartache, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, but a wonderful sense of humor and also embraces the idea of moving forward but keeping in his heart always um, the father that he never had a chance to get to know. My daughter, Emma, more like me, is a real emotional risk taker, and she painted and wrote, even at that young age, her way through this and continues as new issues come up around the way in which Bob died, the relationship we have with the young men that killed Bob, um, she uses art and creative writing to to do to deal with it, just as the way Sam uses kicking a soccer ball around. I want to talk a little bit about your book. Could you tell us about um, how you happened to write the book and when you wrote it and what your inspiration and tell us our audience a little something about it? Sure. I began um, speaking to young people in schools in 2003 because I really believe the story uh, spoke a lot to the need for social responsibility around the use of alcohol and drugs and the specific scenario of unchaperoned house parties and and how things can so quickly go sideways. And through that work, I realized that young people could hear the story and, and, you know, in an hour, an hour and a half, take it all in, ask great questions, and process a lot of information. But the adults in the room would kind of be pasted against the wall, struggling with um, the whole discussion of loss and moving forward their own personal experiences and biases and, you know, all the baggage we carry as we age, um, making it hard for them to take it all in in a short period of time. So I thought the way to get to those people, the way to give them the story in a way that they could process in their own time would be through the writing of a book. So the book came out um, exactly a year ago, last Mm -hmm. September, and the process was, um, cathartic for me. I'm sure you've heard that from other people who have written their their grief stories. Um, I learned a lot. It's not about, always easy to write your own story. Oh, it's mm. not. It's not. Painful. And I, I really had never dealt with losing my own father. Um, he died when I was 25. Mm. And in the writing of the book, I realized that a lot of the the reasons I handled things the way I did was because of my father. And you know, I, I kind of went there. So you know, those chapters took me longer and and uh, required a lot more walks on the beach and, and fresh air to get through. Now, who would you recommend this book to? Well, I would recommend certainly this book to anybody who has lost a loved one, um, certainly people who are dealing with anger. Um, we get very wrapped up 
in anger, and I think it stops us from moving forward. And I, I chose to break the cycle of anger for someone else in order to free myself up. And we were talking on break, Katie. How, what advice would you give people that are stuck in anger and are unable to forgive right now, but yet it's kind of wreaking havoc on their lives and they do need to somehow work through that? How would, it, how would they do that? Well, I think, first of all, we need to acknowledge that anger is a healthy, normal emotion. But mm-hmm. where it takes us is something we need to consider and, and try and control. There was no future for me in living an angry, vengeful life. It was not going to help me parent. It was not going to help me live the life I deserved. And by by consciously choosing, and, and, and I think that that's the point we need to make, is that in any situation in life, whether we're dealing with a, a neighbor dispute or um, a problem in the workplace or conflict within our marriages or, or with our families, that we get to pick the person we're going to be. We can't necessarily pick what happens to us, but in every situation, we get to choose who we are going to be. And I made a conscious decision to not allow the anger to control my life. And once I made that choice, I just laid my life out in a way that supported that that decision. And now, you, d- you did that fairly early or it came right away you did it right away yeah, yeah for, for some of our audience um oh uh, what's his name that uh daughter was killed in oklahoma city heidi bud bud welch, uh, bud welch. Mm-hmm. yeah if you listen to bud welch's show he got there too but it was after a year he almost drank himself to death and you know really he, tried he had his, to hit rock bottom yeah he had to hit rock bottom in order for him to make that decision but he did make that decision and says the same thing you do do that he could have let the anger destroy him right heidi and felt like it was starting to destroy his yeah. life and his relationships and his health. Yeah. But he had a different um, relationship with the person who um, was responsible for his daughter dying than you do because he met the family of Timothy, I mean, not Timothy McVeigh. Um, no, it was. It was Timothy McVeigh's family. No. Oh, yeah. yes, it was. Yeah. was, was. I was thinking of Terry Nichols. Timothy McVeigh's family who did the Oklahoma City bombing, yeah. he met... The father and forgave them and understood that they loved Timothy, but he never forgave Timothy. You know, I, and I can see that. I also, you know, I think when we talk about how easy it would be, for instance, to slip into a situation of drinking yourself um, into your anger or out of your anger, because my children were at the age they were at, um, when I told my kids that their father was dead, my son's reaction was to ask for a bowl of Cheerios. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At age four, of course. Right, so and I knew I had to get those Cheerios, and not just that day, but every day after. Right. And I think that helped me um, in my decision to choose the person I was going to be, because I had to. Now, has your son moved into any kind of anger, or no. your daughter? No, they haven't. And and they have kind of followed yeah. the, the pattern that you've set. They have. Now, you remarried. You were talking about that love, um, yes. falling in love also. And... I, you know, I certainly was not looking for another partner, believe me. Um, I was really focused on my children. They were starting school. I moved back to the community I had grown up in, so I would have the support of family and friends. And um, in the process, met um, another attorney who was handling all my personal legal affairs. Mm-hmm. And he was concerned that I wasn't looking after myself, just, just taking care of me, and, and at one point just suggested... Um, we go have dinner, 
and you know, I, <laughs> I frankly thought he felt sorry for me and that I was you know kind of pathetic because I was just working through everything um, that seemed negative. But I really felt he was the one person in my world that wasn't grieving Bob. Everyone mm-hmm. else was. And we struck up a friendship that um, blossomed into a relationship. And Michael and I were married eight months after Bob was killed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. everybody said, it's too soon, it's wrong. It's, it, so people pass to... judgment on where you should be and what you should be doing in the grief process. I know. And, and, and they felt like eight months. They had their... That's, People, they do. People have judgment on year, you know. Everybody, I shouldn't have moved for one thing. You know, what did I, what did I leave my house for so quickly? Yeah, we have all these rules, I know, and, and as therapists, there are all these rules that people have made up. Whose rules are they? Like, why was I going to stay in this town where you know I'd go and have my gas pumped and wonder if the kid that was pumping my gas killed my husband? Mm-hmm. I needed to leave. I needed to start again. I, you know, I had to reinvent us as a as a family, and I certainly wasn't looking for a relationship. But when one came along, um. You know, my, my kids, little Emma answered the door when we went out for dinner, and, and there she is. She's five years old. She's looking Michael up and down, and she says to him, are you going to marry my mom? <laughs> and he said, well, actually, I just thought I'd take her out for dinner. And Emma said, well, look, if you decide to like her and you, you think you might marry her, it would be great if you would do that before the first day of school. Daddy <laughs> for kindergarten. So we got married on Labor Day. Before the first day of school. And... And that was ten years ago. It was we're coming nine years ago. Ninth wedding anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it worked yeah. out, despite what people yeah. thought and despite their judgments. Uh, yeah, exactly. it's, it's such a great example of you know what? It's our own time. It's our own schedule. Yeah. It's our lives. It's nobody else's. And right. Bob, Bob lives on in my heart. He lives on in my children. Michael has made room for um, Bob's memory in a healthy way in our relationship. Um, and, and you know, and forward we go. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, do you have stepchildren then? Yes, I have a 27-year-old stepson and a 17-year-old stepdaughter. Mm-hmm. And and does does that um, is there any kind of impact with uh, Bob's death in that it's, you do go around and speak on it? So it must be a part of your life. Oh, it's a huge part of my life. And you know, my family has been very, very gracious in in supporting the work that I do because it can't be easy. And I know that you've gone. You forgive. I mean, this show is on forgiveness, and you've forgiven. The guy that killed your husband, his name is Ryan? Yes. Do you, does he speak with you as well? He does. Um, the way Ryan and I met was when I was finally told that an arrest was going to be made five years after Bob. Now, how did it happen? Undercover. They went undercover. Wow. And when they called to say, okay. Now, how did, what does that mean, they went undercover? Well, they, they put Ryan in a situation of thinking that he was working for um, a sort of organized crime uh, group. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be undercover officers. Mm-hmm. And so, at some point in that investigation, he was put in a, in a position of uh, discussing what had happened that night, and he thought he was speaking to friends, and he was speaking to police. Mm-hmm. Um, and he confessed. So they called to say, "We've got the evidence. We're going to lay the charge." And I said, "Great, I want to be there." And they just said, "Are you crazy? Like, why would you want to meet the person that killed your husband?" And now, how many years was this after? Five. Five years, wow. And I said, look, I, you know, I've been married to, a, for, to an attorney. I respect the justice system, but I know that I'm not going to feel any better watching him get taken out of a courtroom in handcuffs. There's mm-hmm. just another family that is going to be devastated by that. I want to sit down with him face-to-face, look him in the eye, tell him how hard this has been, and ask him some hard questions about what was going on in his world. 
and then choose to work with him to try and find some kind of way of repairing all this damage. So the police were, I mean, they didn't know what to do with that request. They made a video of me having the conversation I felt I needed to have with him. And they showed him the video when they arrested him. Well, as soon as Ryan saw the video, he confessed. Huh. And then and then the police said, okay, well, he, he wanted to meet me, so they brought me in. So he but wanted to meet you. He wanted to meet me, and I, well, I met him 16 hours after he was arrested. And then I asked him to plead guilty because I didn't think it was fair to put either family to a trial, and he did that, and he was sentenced. And then as soon as he went to jail, I started to worry about him. What was he sentenced for? How long? Well, <laughs> this is Canada, remember, five years. Mm-hmm. And I Did you feel all right about that? Some people would be very angry it's about not that. Time. It's not the amount of time you spend in jail. It's what you do with the time. Mm-hmm. And if he was going to spend five years changing patterns of behavior, getting cognitive therapy, dealing with his um, substance issues, and was going to come out and be a safe neighbor to you and not somebody my children had to fear, then that's five years well spent. Mm-hmm. But simply building more prisons and putting people away for longer is not giving us safer communities. Right. So once he went to jail, I started to worry about him because I knew the statistics about um, you know, drug use and, and crime in jail, and I educated myself about that end of the system and discovered this whole school of thought, which is you know, a topic for another radio show, which is restorative justice, mm-hmm. bringing people together, the victims and the offenders, to talk about the harm. And we did a fully facilitated reconciliation a year after he went to jail, and it was at that time I told him about the work I was doing, and I offered him a job. I said, mm-hmm. when you get out of jail, come and work with me. Come and talk to kids about your story. Mm-hmm. It's powerful. And so that's where we're at now is we work together whenever we can. Now, he, he's been released then? Yes. He's mm-hmm. on parole until December. And and what did he say about that night? Just that he didn't, I mean, what did he say about kicking your husband? It and... was the culmination of, I mean, picture a kid uh, at four with a speech impediment being teased by his friends, mm-hmm. bullied, um, not telling his parents he was being bullied, wanting to deal with it himself. His parents splitting up. I mean, it's a pretty classic you know, that's the, yeah, the Craig Scott and the yeah. Scott family that talks, one of the big things they talk about is that, and not to harass kids and the yeah. kindness. And Absolutely. So Ryan was bullied. His parents split up. He felt disconnected from everybody in his life. So he started stuffing that anger down. And there's that anger word again, right? Mm-hmm. He suppressed mm-hmm. all that anger and then one, one night at a very young age got drunk got into a fight and discovered the power of his fist and the numbing effects of, of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And that became his lifestyle, getting drunk, mm-hmm. looking for a fight. You know, this is really um, a, a fascinating story, but I know there's some people out there who are saying, this guy killed my daughter. He's a bum. You know, he's no, he's not going to talk about it. And as our friend Luke Cox, who's a... Um, he's a mediator, and he goes to court with people. Um, some of these hardened criminals, this is a whole different story. They're not even going to admit that they did it. They're Absolutely. never going to have any remorse. There's going to be nothing there for you. Totally different story. So so we do have to look at what kind of a story we're talking about. Absolutely. It's completely specific to the story, and restorative justice doesn't work when you have somebody that is, is not acknowledging the harm that they've caused. But Ryan acknowledged it because he wanted out. He wanted to break the cycle. He was suicidal. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was thinking that he must have suffered himself for those years when he knew he'd killed somebody and it was never brought and out. Didn't, and didn't have the, the inner strength and resource to step up and to tell the truth. 
Mm-hmm. And he says that the day he went to jail was the day that his life began because it was then that he could work on all that repressed stuff and he came out the other end a better person. Anything that you feel like we've missed, for sure I want to uh, mention your book, Walking After Midnight. What's the full title? It's Walking After Midnight, One Woman's Journey Through Murder, Justice, and Forgiveness. Great. And I would highly recommend you get that, and you can get it through Amazon, and do you have any other places you want us to get it? Um, I think Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all, all the usual outlets. It's published by New Harbinger. Great. And you've got a wonderful website. Talk about that. Thank you. Well, the website was was um, sort of a necessity once I started doing the speaking work just as a way to disseminate information um, and also a place for the young kids who had heard me to, to contact me, www.katiehutchisonpresents. And uh, I've just found all kinds of great resources to, to share with um, people as they go through their own journeys. And we'd love to put that link on our site. We'd love to have you put yours on ours on Absolutely. yours. Absolutely. <laughs> pleasure. Uh, and um, you do give speeches so people can line you up to talk in there. Where would you talk in schools and civic groups? We do a lot of work in, in schools, in youth detention facilities, to parent groups, to conferences for um, victim service providers, healthcare professionals, uh, mental health. Um, people, the justice system. I do a lot of work as an advocate for restorative justice. The story sort of spans a lot of different, a lot of different areas. So, um, Heidi, did you have anything before we, um, you know, since this is our last segment, did we have anything you wanted to say or ask? You? I'm just struck with the fact that Katie has been able to help people in forgiveness and have her own forgiveness and move out of the anger and. Working with the 9-11 families, like Katie said, um, anger is a legitimate emotion. And it's understandable that we have that emotion. However, I've seen the the flip side of what happens when we hold on to rage. And, I mean, with 9-11, which is what I'm familiar with because I do work in this field, the terrorists are not remorseful. And, you know, a, a lot of the people that died that day were terrorists, and they are not remorseful, and they're dead, a lot of them, and the ones that are alive are not remorseful. And there's a lot of anger and rage that some, that some, not all, some of the people that I work with have, which is now wreaking havoc on on their health. So um, it's inspirational for me to hear that Katie's been able to move forward and let go of of this anger and rage, and you did it, like you said, fairly quickly. I think I think one of the things that people misunderstand about forgiveness is that somehow it is saying that what happened um, was not awful mm-hmm. or somehow condoning what happened. And I don't see it that way at all. Um, I mean, we could never condone um, Bob's murder. We could never condone 911. Of course not. But what forgiveness is for me is saying, I choose not to be defined by this act. You know, I choose to live a life um, incorporating my grief, my sadness, my memories um, in a place that is most of the time manageable, sometimes not manageable. There are days, as we all know, there are those days. Um, but I, I will not be defined by this. And one of the people that I had to forgive before I forgave Ryan, and I think your listeners will find this interesting, is And Ryan's myself. the person who killed your husband. That's correct, is myself. Mm-hmm. I needed to forgive myself for moving forward with my life. Mm. for choosing to live a full and productive um, existence. 
um, for remarrying, uh, for reinvesting, reinvesting for celebrating life. For being Isn't it interesting that we have to forgive ourselves yeah. for reinvesting? But I did. That is and, such a good point. And once I did that, then I could offer that forgiveness to Ryan to say, um, "You are not your crime. You committed it. You're responsible for it. You need to pay the price." But then, the greatest legacy that you could create for me would be to break the cycle of anger, to raise children in a safe home, you know, to, to be safe in your community. And if, if you do that, then we've, then we've cleaned up. I, I have this belief that we have a moral responsibility when bad things happen to get involved, roll up our sleeves, and clean up the mess. And that sometimes when we're cleaning up after a mess, we find ourselves standing right alongside the person that caused it. And mm-hmm. it's at that moment you see a huge amount of power and possibility. And I think if all Ryan and I have accomplished is cleaning up this little corner. Um, Talk a little bit about cleaning up the mess. Are you talking about an altruistic helping society? Yeah, I, I, I think. Because I could see some, some really violent person saying, yeah, let's go out and clean it up and, you know. Well, I just think I think when we, we come across a mass, you know, people say to me, why, why should you have anything to do with Ryan? Why is it your responsibility to even care about him? Well, I'm saying, who better <laughs> to care about Ryan than me? But first, as you say, you have to forgive and care Absolutely. about yourself. Exactly. Well, it's almost time for us to close the show. Do you have any closing comments for, for widows? Um, do you have any thoughts or, or for people who have been involved with murder? Um, I think one of the things I've learned in my own journey is I was very judged by the belief system that I held and the actions that I took. But I look at my life and I think I did a pretty good job considering. And I've learned not to be judgmental of others and the way they handle their own grief journey. And I think... It's starting with you, right? Yeah, it starts with you. Listen to your heart. And if you have a friend that is on a grief journey... Support them, be there for them, but give them lots of leeway. Uh, (laughs) You know, don't tell them what to do. Don't say, if I were you, if this happened to me. Don't use those words. Just bear witness. Right. I love that. Bear witness and be present, as you were today, Katie. Thank you so much, and I know you've helped uh, a lot of people. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.